Well, we have a saying, when the cat is away, the mice will play. And that is probably the most appropriate description for the ending of the book of Nehemiah. You, you really wanted the book of Nehemiah to end at chapter 12. We've had this great restoration. The people have made covenant promises. The Passover's been reinstituted. The wall's been dedicated. There's service going on at the temple. There is joy throughout the city. You want the, and they lived happily ever after moment to sit right there at chapter 12, end the book, and let's move on, but uh, not the case. Uh, chapter 13 is how we're going to end this book, and uh, I'm calling it the, the title for, for, for this Crashing from Coasting, and I think you'll see why, as we're going to look at, there are four problems that are described in this chapter. We're going to quickly look at those problems and then spend more of our time at the end talking about, well, why did those problems come up? After all that had happened and all the reformations and all the dedication, how did we get into this situation? So that's what we're going to look at tonight. Now, one of the things that is very important to note is that in Nehemiah chapter 13 and verse 6, it tells us that Nehemiah had to go back to Persia. That is a very important piece of information. Now, we shouldn't be surprised by that because if you remember back in chapter 1 and chapter 2, Nehemiah is an important figure in the Persian administration. He is the cupbearer to the king. He's a trusted advisor. And when Nehemiah asked to be able to go to Jerusalem to help rebuild the city, he wasn't supposed to just leave in perpetuity and never come back. In chapter 2, the king wants to know, well, when are you going to come back? And so we get a picture in chapter 13 and verse 6 that however long has gone by at this point, he has had to return to Persia to maintain his duties and to do his work. And what's going to happen now in chapter 13 is that Nehemiah, after a significant amount of time of being away, has now come back to Jerusalem to see how things are going. And so that's the scene that is set up for us in this chapter. Nehemiah has been away for a significant amount of time, and now he comes back and here's what he finds. We'll start in verse 4. We'll bring in the first three verses in a moment. But to understand those first three verses, I think it is best to start in verse 4, where it says, Now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done, for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. And then I gave orders, and they closed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. So great start that happens. Here, here Nehemiah comes back. And, and of all things to note that you have a guy living in the temple. 
And not only is he living in the temple, they have thrown out of it the space where all the offerings and the contributions that were supposed to be kept for the Levites and for the offerings. You had a room there in which all those things were gathered and kept. That's the room that this guy has taken over. All of the offerings have been kicked out. All the contributions are kicked out. Who knows where they were put? And this guy now is is living in there. Bad enough for the high priest to tell this fellow, hey, why don't you just live in the temple and just, you know, have room there? Okay, whatever that reasoning behind that was. But I want you to notice that, that we are also aware that this man is an Ammonite. Well, that's what the first three verses are talking about. The first three verses of chapter 13 remind that no Ammonite or Moabite was to have anything to do with the house of God because of the historical opposition those two nations had given against Israel. And so that's what the first three verses reveal is that they weren't supposed to be a part of the people but separated because of that. So not only do you have somebody living in the temple, which he shouldn't have been living there even if he'd been an Israelite, Second, it's an Ammonite that's living there. But if you really want to turn the knife about who the guy is that's living there, it's Tobiah. Now, friends, Tobiah is the guy that we have read about from the beginning of the book of Nehemiah. Remember the three names, Samballot, Tobiah, and Geshem have been the three people who have been causing all kinds of problems and are the main opposition in trying to stop the building of the walls and stopping the work in the city. They're the reasons why the people were afraid. They're the reasons why they're building with one brick and holding a sword in the other hand. They've allowed Tobiah, of all people, an Ammonite, to move into the house of God, removing the contributions and the offerings that were supposed to be made for God and for the Levites, he's the one living in there. How do you think Nehemiah is going to feel about that? I mean, of all the things that you would come in walking back into, you cannot believe that him, of all people, is doing that. And so you'll notice that they were told in verse 8 that, I, I want to visualize that. He just starts throwing all of his stuff out. This is great. He just walks in there and you can just see him pitching out all of Tobiah's belongings. There goes the furniture. There goes the bed. There goes, he's just pitching all of it right out of the temple. You are not going to live here. And he begins the purging process of moving Tobiah back out of there and then moving with the offerings and the contributions that were supposed to be in that place back in, as verse 8 says. Now, here's the big question, of course. Why would that be allowed to happen? Why this moral compromise? Why is that taking place while Nehemiah is away? One of the things that is is fascinating to note is that chapter 13 is is revealing to us that there is a, a family connection that has happened with Tobiah of all things. Tobiah the Ammonite has a family connection to Eliashib the priest. And so he is allowing moral compromise to happen because of this family relationship that exists. And so Sure, go ahead and move in, even though an Ammonite's not supposed to be in the temple, even though this is a room that is supposed to be for the offerings and the contributions uh, for the people and for the Levites as an offering before God. And never mind the fact that, Tobiah, you have been an opponent to everything that we've been doing this whole time. 
he allows him to move into the temple room and to prepare a place there himself. One of the things that I just think is so stunning to consider, and I think a truth that we can certainly recognize, is family relationships can blind us to the compromises that we are making against God. You can think about this in a pretty easy way, that it is easy as an outsider to look at other people and go, well, I can't believe they would make these moral compromises for their family. Look at how they're giving up on God. Look how they're yielding the the obvious will of what God wants them to do, and they're not doing it, and it's because they're blinded by family. It's so easy to see in other people, and yet so difficult to see in ourselves. And it's one of the things that is so fascinating that Nehemiah walks in and goes, what are you doing? And Eliashib has been clearly blinded by his relationship, his family relationship with Tobiah, that he is willing to do the very thing that God said not to do and completely rejecting the law of God and kicking out what was supposed to be taking place in that temple and allowing an Ammonite to be in there, allowing an opponent of God to be in that very place, and all because of a family relationship. I think it is such an important warning that... We can have the tendency to allow our family relationships to hold us back from serving the Lord the way we know we should. And we have to really watch out for that because that can come from whether it be a spouse or a parent or children or uncles, aunts, all kinds of family relationships. Just as much as a family member can encourage your service to God, they can just as equally be an anchor that is keeping you from serving God the way that you want, that we make compromises for them because they're family members. And I just am fascinated to see that Nehemiah is a way, and you would think of all people, you would be able to entrust the moral reforms to the priest Eliashib. And he's the first one failing. He is the first one who is yielding to moral compromise because of the family relationships that he has. Unfortunately, this is not the only problem that we see. You'll notice in verse 10, the second problem is recorded. He said, I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, why has the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. And then all Judah brought the tithe of grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed the treasurers. Over the storehouses, Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, Padiah of the Levites and their assistant Hanan and the son of Zakur, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O oh my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the service of my God and for his service. Second problem, he, he comes and he finds... None of the Levites are working in the temple anymore. They're out there working in the fields. What has happened? What is going on? Why are the Levites working in the field rather than working in the temple? Well, he comes to find out the people had stopped bringing in the contributions. Remember, the way the Levites were to be provided for was through the tithing and the offerings. And so as the people of Israel would bring those in, the Levites would have a portion of that. Some was devoted to God and some was devoted to them so that they could live on that while they did the work for God. 
they stop bringing those things in. The Levites go, well, we're going to have to feed our families somehow. And so they all stop working at the temple and they're now out in the fields doing work. And so Nehemiah comes back and goes, what is going on around here? The house of God is left empty and desolate. No work is going on. You can just imagine the emptiness. The sacrifices have stopped. You can just imagine nothing is going on. It says the temple singers are not there. You just see the quietness of the temple. What is going on? This is to be a place of worship, a place of prayer. And none of that is happening at this moment. And so he immediately then goes about restoring that collection so that these Levites can leave the fields and come back and do the work that God had appointed them to do. It it is interesting to see that here because that is certainly a New Testament principle that is repeated in a number of places. You might remember the Apostle Paul as he uh, writes to the Philippians in chapter 4, thanking them for while he's in Corinth, you have the Philippian church who is supporting him and sending contributions to help him while he's doing the work. And so you see that beautiful picture. He even writes twice to the Corinthians and to uh, Timothy about that imagery of quoting from the Old Testament to not muzzle the ox so that spiritual teachers and spiritual leaders would be able to devote themselves to doing the work rather than leaving that work to do other things. And so you have that same image in the New Testament that Nehemiah is dealing with and addressing right here. The work had stopped because the Levites had not been provided for. And since they weren't provided for, they were like, well, we're going to have to do something. And they go back into the work. So Nehemiah fixes that problem. And you have to love this prayer that Nehemiah will repeat throughout chapter 13. You see it the first time here in verse 14. Remember me, O my God, concerning this and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. Remember the work that I'm doing as I'm trying to restore these things and bring the right spiritual reformation. See what I'm doing as I try to accomplish this good work. If that were not enough, notice verse 15. Also in those days, I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on that day when they sold food. Tyrrhenians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah and Jerusalem itself. And I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you were doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? And now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. What an interesting scene as he comes and he goes, Nobody has a regard for God and his Sabbath anymore. Direct violation of the commandment that God had given is that they weren't supposed to do work on the Sabbath. And this is not, you know, like the Pharisees doing funny business or anything like that. Very clear in verse 15, they're treading the wine presses, they're loading donkeys with all kinds of goods. And verse 16 shows the whole marketplace is wide open. They're buying and selling. Nobody has any regard for the Sabbath whatsoever. Now, why is that such a big deal? Why is Nehemiah so outraged and talking about God's wrath here and saying in verse 18, this is why disaster came upon us before and now it's going to come upon us again for by doing that. Why is the Sabbath so significant? 
Well, you remember that you have in the Sabbath a, a remembering each week of how they were slaves in Egypt and the freedom that God had accomplished in the Exodus. And one of the things that was supposed to happen in that Sabbath was that by being set free, they were now also being set free from work for one day in which they wouldn't have to worry about the cares of life because God was going to provide for them. That was most notably seen in the wilderness. Remember that you had on the Friday, they were able to gather a double portion. God gives them double so that on Saturday, do they have to worry about food? Do they have to worry about you know dealing with fields or anything like that? Not in the slightest. God is saying, I want you just to rest and remember me. I want you to worship me. I don't want it to be a day where you're full of the cares and concerns of life. I'm giving you this moment to just not do that. And what is so fascinating is the people would rather work than worship. You know, God was trying to communicate something to them in the Sabbath and saying, I'm going to take care of you and I'm giving you the freedom to just worship me for one day. I'm taking care of you anyway. And so allow this be, to be a day where you're not worried about what you will eat and what you will drink and what you will wear and how it's all going to take place in your schedules and life and all of that. Just worship me and let it be a day of remembering of what God had done for, for you when you were slaves in Egypt. And yet the people did not want to do that. They refused to do that. I, I, it, it, to me, it is somewhat unimaginable. And the only way I could frame this would be, could you imagine if your boss was giving you a day off and you went into work anyway and your boss is like, what are you doing? You're not supposed to be here. You're supposed to be doing whatever you're going to do but not be here. And you're like, oh, no, I would just rather be here than going to be. What? (laughs) Why would you do such a thing? And that's what God is shrugging his shoulders and saying to the people is, I'm giving you a day to just, Put all of the cares of the world aside. I'm giving you a day to just lay all that down. I'm giving you a day when you can just worship me and you would rather work than rest in me. You would rather work than than worship me. And I think it is such an interesting thing to see that this is exactly what he has to do. In fact, you'll notice in verse 19, what Nehemiah has to do is he has to give the command to shut all the gates of the city so that they won't be opened on the Sabbath. And yet it's so bad in verse 20, you will notice it says, all the merchants and the sellers of all kinds of wares are lodging outside Jerusalem once or twice. So they're just hoping for a way to get in on the Sabbath. Nehemiah says, no, close the doors. We're not having that. The market is shut down. We are not working. We are remembering God today. And everybody's sitting there going, yeah, but we can't wait to sell our stuff. So notice verse 21. I warned them and said to them, why are you lodging outside the wall? If you do so again, I'm going to lay my hands on you. Don't make me come down there and arrest you for this. You are getting out of here. I'm not going to have you come in here and make the Sabbath day a time of work and forgetting what God has done. And so in verse 22, he has the Levites purify themselves and guard the gates to keep that Sabbath day holy. What a sad picture. That the heart of the people is to desire to ignore God and worry about their work. That's what they're doing. We don't care about God. We don't care about remembering what he's done. We would rather spend our time working in, instead. And I think it certainly 
reveals the heart of the people that Nehemiah is addressing, that they would rather enjoy the work than enjoy the rest and the renewal that God is offering in worship. It is such an important warning and a picture of our heart. If we would rather be caught up in the schedules of the world and and the go of life than being able to spend our time in worshiping and enjoying time in fellowship with God. And if that were not enough, maybe verse 23 is the most surprising of all for all that we have read about in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah up to this point. In verse 23, also in those days, I saw the Jews had married the women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. We are back to the problem of intermarriage yet again. It was a problem earlier that Nehemiah had to deal with. It was a problem that Ezra had to deal with in chapters 9 and 10 as he has to command the people to put these these, uh, uh, unlawful marriages away. And so now here it is again, is that he comes and the people are back at this again. And so he warns them again and confronts them about how they were not supposed to do that. The end of verse 25, the command of God, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women among the many nations? There was no king like him. And he was beloved by his God and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? It was a command of God in those days. You were not to marry the people of the land that was not allowed. Uh, An important law that God had given While Nehemiah is away, it appears that they have neglected that law and they go about doing all all of that again. They begin to marry. I think it is important to note it is not a small thing to God about this, that this has come up now three times in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah about how they are in sinful marriages and how that needs to be dealt with and cannot be ignored. And so here it is coming up yet again and Nehemiah telling them that they need to to cleanse themselves of this. Verse 30, thus I cleanse them from everything foreign and I established the duties of the priests and the Levites each in his work and I provided for the wood offering at the appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. This picture then is what ultimately a, a great, verse 30 is a great summary of all that Nehemiah has had to do. Sometimes we can think of Nehemiah is simply a man who came back to rebuild the walls. And yet here he states, I have tried to purge everything foreign out of these people. I have tried to get the world out of them. I have tried to help them be holy and dedicated to God and not fall into the traps of being like the surrounding nations. And so, so much of his work has been about a restoration and getting them right before God. Now, here's really the big question that I have for us after we quickly have seen these problems. What happened? I want you to think about ultimately what happened. Here, are the, These are the people who had made this tremendous dedication. We talked about it uh, last week about how they had done such great things in making clear, memorable, measurable steps of how they were going to repent and follow God. And they dedicated themselves to that. What happened? How could the wheels fall off so much 
while Nehemiah is away. How could there be such a mess on their hands now that Nehemiah has come back? I think it's an important question that we have to answer because it sits right here after a great restoration, a great uprising of spiritual renewal that suddenly seems to be completely out the window. And Nehemiah seems to be the only one with any spiritual awareness to say, what are you all doing? We've got to get back to doing what God says. What happened? And I believe that's what the important warning from this book simply is all about, is that there is such a temptation to spiritually relax once we think we've hit certain marks spiritually. We can sit there and just think, you know, I am doing so good. I finally have been able to deal with that sin and it's no longer a problem. Or look how far I've come along. Or now I'm serving God the way that I should. And there can be such a temptation to just spiritually relax, to allow the intensity to die down. I mean, imagine the wall is done. The worship's been restored. Nehemiah feels comfortable to leave. Things have been set up so well. It looks like everything's going good. So what happened? Except the intensity died down. And friends, that is so easy to have happen. And as soon as we allow our spiritual zeal and our spiritual fire and that intensity to lessen to any degree... That's when those prior sins come back. That's when the old habits come back. There is a a reason why you have pictured in the Bible the need for us to fight against sin and put sin to death every single day. It is a decision that has to be made every single day because if we begin to coast... Those old habits will rise from the dead and they will gain a foothold again and they will come at us again. I'm going to underscore one word in a passage that you know very well. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. But my word that I want you to see is daily. This is not something you do when you get up from the waters of baptism and go, okay, here I am. I've taken up my cross. All right. Spiritual coasting time. I'm doing great. I'm with God. I want you to see that Jesus said, this is a decision that has to happen every day. Every day there is a battle that we are coming to, that we are deciding, are we going to put the sins to death again Or are we going to just lessen up a little bit? Are we going to relax a little bit? And friends, there is never a day when we can stop the work of renewal and the work of restoration in our hearts and in our lives. There is never a day where we cannot actively go to battle against sin and against Satan and against all those things that we have put to death in our past because they will rise up over and over again. I like the picture that the Apostle Paul used. He said it like this, straining forward to what lies ahead. You know, I would like it to say, you know, coasting comfortably to what lies ahead, right? <laughs> I, 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 got, I got a good push 
And then you can just kind of let it go. You know, you like to do that on a bicycle, right? For me, I like to do it on shopping carts. I'm getting too old for that, but I still do it. You get on the back of a shopping cart, you give it a good push, and then you just ride it down the parking lot. You ever see me do that? That's me. Just want to coast. It's just fun. Just ride it out. <laughs> Phil's in. We're going to do it. The picture that you have Paul saying is it's not about spiritual coasting. You can't just give it a few good pushes and off you're on your way and you'll just kind of coast on into heaven. Straining forward to what lies ahead. The Apostle Paul repeatedly said this. Don't grow weary in doing good. There is such an easy temptation before us to just start coasting. And I want us to do two things tonight. Number one, just evaluate. Have we let up on our intensity? Think about the intensity and the zeal that you had when you first came to Christ and you first were coming to him and the goals that you had set and your desires to accomplish things for God. Has that zeal and that intensity waned? Have we let up on our intensity when it comes to worship? Or let up on our intensity when it comes to serving others, when it comes to teaching, sharing Jesus with the world, encouraging others, letting up on our intensity in prayer. Isn't that one of the easy ones to let the intensity up in the prayer life go? Another easy one, just let up a little bit in our Bible reading and Bible study. We just kind of let that go a little bit. It is so easy to allow those fires to just die down. Allow those things to go by the wayside. And we, we, we kid ourselves and we just go, ah, it's just a day. It's just been a busy day. It's been a rough day. It's been a tiring day. It's been an exhausting day. It'll be there tomorrow. And you know what happens tomorrow? You have another terrible, exhausting, miserable day and it'll be there tomorrow. And so then, okay, well, and pretty soon these things stack up. I don't believe when Nehemiah left, all the people said, all right, Nehemiah's gone. Let's start sinning. I, I believe they were real in their devotion to God. But what happened? Time allowed them to just kind of wane and allowed them to no longer give attention with the intensity that they had in the past. And so we need to evaluate, has our coasting allowed sins to creep back into our lives? The solution for that, and my second point then is, the way we can maintain our intensity is to stay closely connected to Jesus. That is the only way to keep that intensity up, is that we just stay closely connected to Jesus. One of the things that's interesting about the books of Ezra and Nehemiah is that for all of their work in restoration and repentance and repairing hearts, they were unable to generate a lasting commitment. And I believe that failure was all pointing to it's why we needed a savior who would come, who would truly change our hearts and change our lives that would generate a lasting repentance so that we would want to seek him with all of our heart. The cross is supposed to bring out that intensity. The cross is supposed to bring out that zeal and seeing what Jesus has done for us and saving us from the wrath of God. And so tonight I'm just asking you to think, don't crash from coasting. Don't allow your spiritual fervor to die down. Don't allow time to do it. Don't allow the busyness of life to do it. 
Don't allow the problems of the day to do it. Do not allow that intensity to die down, but become closely connected to Jesus. Strain forward to what lies ahead. I'm sure Nehemiah was shocked, and I don't believe any of these people had any intent to see where they ultimately ended up at. None of us have that intent. But sometimes you can just wake up one day and go, wow, look how far away I am from where I was. And spiritual coasting is often the cause. Let's be careful then about our walk with God and then be intense in our desire to follow him with all of our heart. Let's go to God in prayer tonight. Heavenly Father, Lord, it is a very easy thing to allow sinful habits and sinful desires to creep back into our hearts and into our lives. And Lord, I pray that you would not only forgive us for when we fail, but that you would just make us aware of when our intensity is waning. Lord, help us to see when we are putting more effort and more time into the cares and the concerns of the world rather than having the desire for serving you, getting to know you, and worshiping you. Help us to be aware when our prayer life wanes, when meditating on you starts falling down. Help us to see when we are not in your word as we ought. Help us to see when we are not acting like your servants and wanting to serve others and teach others and encourage others. Lord, just help us to see when those fires die down. And Lord, I pray that you would build us up in those moments. Give us the strength, Lord, to put sin to death every day. Lord, help us remember that Satan is constantly trying to ruin us. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to strain forward to the great things that lie ahead. Lord, thank you for your son that gives us forgiveness. Thank you for your son that erases our failures. Thank you for your son that motivates us to keep straining and pressing forward to the wonderful goal that sits ahead of us. Lord, we we, we pray that we will attain it and we thank you for the hope that we have because your son came and died for our sins. Lord, I pray that you would generate a restoration within all of our hearts, that you would transform our spirits and give us a renewed zeal to serve you all the more fully in the days ahead. Forgive us for any letdown. And Lord, keep us from coasting. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We are going to sing an invitation song. We do invite you to come to Jesus. The beautiful thing about Jesus is he came because he knew that's what we'd do, is we needed someone who would push us on, would forgive us of our failures, and keep us pressing toward that goal. Can we help you tonight to come to Jesus, turning away from sin? Be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. We want to help you. Won't you come and do that now while we stand and while we sing?